This is hell. Oh, what a wonderful voice that person has. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. You are listening to the live stream of This Is Hell, or maybe you're listening to the podcast. I do not know. As I have been mentioning on the show many times throughout this year, 2022 has completely sucked. And it went and came in like a lion. It didn't go out like a lamb. It's going out like rabid lions right now because, well, our guest we have not been able to hook up with today. Uh, there was a little bit of confusion when it came to the schedule, and uh, it might be a, a mistake on our end. It might be a mistake on his end. We're really not too sure right now. So the person who was supposed to be our guest today, Michael Hawthorne, investigative reporter at the uh, Chicago Tribune, the lead author of the five-part Chicago Tribune investigation on PFAS, P-F-A-S, and their impact on Chicago and across the United States and around the world. Uh, He was going to be our guest on the show today, but we haven't heard from him, so we're going to be doing something a little bit differently, and I'll explain that in a few minutes. Michael is a Pulitzer finalist investigative reporter who focuses on the environment and public health for the Chicago Tribune. You can follow him on Twitter at ScribeGuy, and we are hoping that he will be our guest now on tomorrow's show. Just prior to today's show, we found out that tomorrow's guest is unable to do the show tomorrow. We just found that out right before today's show, so we are hoping that our guest Stefania Marizzi, who will be talking to us about WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, she is like the person who is one of the people uh, closest to Julian Assange, Uh, she might be our guest on our first show of 2023. So right now, everything's kind of up in the air. And remember, live radio is better. Bumper stickers should be issued. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show. Live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. First, thank you for suggesting uh, today's guest because Michael Hawthorne's work at the Chicago Tribune is absolutely fantastic. And uh, you sent me a few suggestions, and it looks like uh, some of those guests are going to be our guests early on in next uh, next year, uh, including hopefully Devin Pierce, who uh, wrote a book called Unmasking Autism. And I will be hanging out with my niece, who is autistic, over the holidays, so I'm very interested in that. So thank you for both those suggestions. Yeah, I think their name is Devin Price. Oh, is it Price? Right. You're right, yeah. right. It's um, Devin Price. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. Hopefully uh, we can find Michael. Hopefully he's okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So how excited you are you about uh, cat sitting for me over the holidays? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't met the cats yet, so I don't really know what I'm in store yet for yet. But I always like to house it. You know, it's uh, get to see where someone lives, get to see where your boss lives. That's fun. <laughs> Good word. Never refer to me as your boss ever again. I just happen to be a friend who pays you. Let's okay. put it that way. Uh, so... Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, we're going to want you to come over and check out the place. It's pretty exciting. Our place at Christmas, you won't believe it because uh, we do have a spectacular Christmas tree. It's a little bit over the top. Is it alive? Usually. Oh, yeah. It's alive <laughs> and walking around our house right now as we speak. I think Laura is actually fighting it off as we speak. So uh, please remind us, Lindsay, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Let's and let's see. share a few of the listeners' responses so far. And then we'll tell people what we'll be doing on the show today. 
I think this is the first time I've read this one out loud. Oh, and it's a longie. It's from Sebastian. (laughs) Yeah. This week's question from hell. What tiny, normally inconsequential thing that someone does in your close proximity is the straw that breaks the pre-Christmas slash holiday stress-powered camel's back, making you fly so thoroughly off the handle that you make national news? (laughs) I think I'll be using a litter box during the holidays at people's (laughs) homes. I'll bring it with me in that way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> They'll think I'm, hey, did, did, have you heard that uh, apparently on the far right, they're telling people right now that uh, we are going to have to, from now on, we will all be required to tell people which furry we want to be. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, the litter box thing, that that's a, definitely not a deal breaker for me. I mean, compost <laughs> toilets, our guests today, we were about to talk about how polluted our drinking water is. <laughs> and our sewer system our is, sewer right. System. So we all need to have our own litter boxes in our hamster cage apartments. So. I can't believe that this PFAS is in Maggie <laughs> Daly Park. It's in Maggie Daly Park. That sludge was used for the landfill for Maggie <laughs> Daly Park. Hey, bring your kids down. Enjoy the toxic sludge. It's everywhere. It yeah. is everywhere. <laughs> so uh, why don't you give us a couple of the answers from our listeners uh, before we tell people what's happening Ooh. on today's show? Uh, I actually don't know if it's written down here what the last comment was. Let's see if I can remember when I was listening. I feel like I remember figgy pudding. Yes. Was that the last I one? I think that was the last one. Okay, so the next up is from John T. Should I reread this question now? What tiny, normally inconsequential thing that someone does in your close proximity is a straw that breaks a pre-Christmas slash holiday stress-powered camel's back, making you fly so thoroughly off the handle that you make national news. And if you don't speak English, that probably sounded like one word. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That's okay. It's a lot like German right now. Uh, John T. says, brick and mortar businesses that do not accept cash, even for purchases less than $5. Also, key QR codes instead of human readable menus. All right. Yeah, I feel that. QR codes, I wonder what they do to like our schizophrenic population, just like seeing QR codes everywhere. Yeah, and the other thing. What do they mean? (laughs) And the other thing for me is, uh, you know, I've got low vision. Uh, Unless you give me a telephone that's like 20 inches wide, I have trouble reading those (laughs) freaking menus. There is no consideration for people with low vision when it comes to the Americans with Disabilities Act and cell phones. Like, for instance, I, I don't have a cell phone. You have to now do two step verification on. Uh, Facebook using a cell phone so I have to use my girlfriend's cell phone number and now uh, Facebook has told me you can't use that phone number anymore so I have no idea of how I can even get into uh, Facebook right now I'm trying to trying to start up our old Google voice uh, phone number which uh, if I remember right was 773 U by OVA we got it from this fertilization clinic and uh, (laughs) it was the only one that was available at the time so that's awesome but yeah it's those um security measures are super ableist I mean those those ones that ask you if you're they're trying to see if you're not a robot but they make you like which what pictures have motorcycles in them? Yeah, thanks like, a lot. What if you can't see? Anyways, yeah, <laughs> exactly. they're terrible. Uh, I give up on logging into things half the time. But uh, <laughs> see, it works. T- related to the question from Helen being locked out of Facebook, though, I don't know. I never contacted Kim G about winning when I was supposed to. Oh, so, last week. Yeah, we Kim G. If you're listening can... right now, I will contact you. <laughs> we'll get to it. Yeah, and uh, Kim. <laughs> Kim has won before, so she knows oh, the okay. whole. Okay. Rigmarole. All right. Any more answers to the question? Yes, definitely. Uh, Dan K. 
what is the tiny, normally inconsequential thing that makes you m- lose make it? the national news? I was trying to do an abbreviated yeah. version. Um, Dan K says, wish me happy Hanukkah. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't click the most recent button because I remember go. that one was read yesterday. Yes, that was. He, um, it was uh, people wishing him a happy Hanukkah. And all of a yeah. sudden, he's going to make national news. <laughs> okay, so let's see. Figgy Pudding. Uh, did you read this one about, patro- this very long one about petroleum? From Mark S.? Yeah. Yes, okay. that was fantastic, yeah, but very long. Yeah, I thought that There's another very long one next, I guess. All right. From Blake E. Blake E. K. Uh to gather around with friends and family for a game slash puzzle, I get a feeling of impending doom and some generalized anxiety. It was my drunk mother outing my drunker younger brother during a Scrabble game to my father <laughs> and their German foreign exchange student who spoke no English. At some point shortly after this, my brother accidentally exposed himself to my mother. My mom barged <laughs> into the bathroom on him. In the explosion that was generated from all this sent all the guests running, and in my escape... My 69 Plymouth Valiant lost a wheel in the middle of nowhere, (laughs) south of Chelsea, I think, and I had to hitchhike to a police station in the nether regions of December 25th, Michigan, with negative wind chill and blizzard with a Doberman Pitbull mix. We got a ride in the back of some good folks pickup truck to the Ann Arbor police station until a friend in Cleveland was able to pick me up. It was a long half hour on Route 23. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. And he didn't make national news for flipping out from that? That's pretty, pretty impressive. I'd think he already had made national news. Any more? Uh, yes. Uh, Kibby N says, my housemate whistling all over the house. <laughs> my response is so hysterical, I'm worried it'll become historical. <laughs> That's pretty God. good. Whenever uh, there is, like, pop Christmas music, uh, that we stumble across for whatever reason in my household, uh, my girlie loses it. <laughs> she cannot take it. I respect that. If it's Christmas music that was written after, say, 1900, she <laughs> does not want to hear it. Yeah, it's like, get something original to write about. It's <laughs> exactly. About I feel the same way. Yeah. Uh, there aren't enough Memorial Day songs. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, <laughs> that reminds me, though. This one reminds me. The only thing I thought of for this question was, like, my old roommate used to, like, clear their throat frequently. Ugh. Ugh. I didn't really know why. They weren't, like, sick or anything. But every time, it was just this little noise. Like, it really... I, I was about to lose it like, every time. <laughs> that was bad. That was the worst I've kind of like. <laughs> and, you didn't, and you didn't make national news. No. Congratulations. No, actually, that was that was one of my better roommate. The relationship. <laughs> I miss that roommate. <laughs> it sounds like you've had great roommates. Um, you know, I, I haven't had that many roommates. I've only ever lived like with one other person at a time, and now I live alone. So there you go. Um, there's a there's quite a bit more. Uh, there's this we can read a couple more warren l says put my order with wet bottles in a paper bag so they break and dump all over about a hundred dollars from the restaurant wow (laughs) wow nice uh and then from mark a 
Anyone who hangs the mistletoe over the door upside down, resulting in bad luck kisses instead of good luck kisses. Oh, I didn't know it had that horseshoe kind of component to... I had no idea. No idea to mistletoe. All I knew about mistletoe is that it's toxic and can kill you if you eat it. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, I gotta go make sure my mistletoe... Maybe that's what's wrong. Maybe that's why we're having so many problems with booking guests. My mistletoe is upside down. <laughs> that, was, that could be it. Could be. All right, well... Now what are we going to do? Is that enough enough responses? No, let's read some more. We got time. Well, this is the last one on Facebook from Justin M. We'll just finish it there then. It's also long-winded. I like like these ones. We should have more long-winded questions for more (laughs) long-winded answers. Uh, I'm a custodian at a community college, and every day I have to pick up wads of paper off of the floor right next to the trash can in every bathroom and extract full cups of coffee and bagel remnants (laughs) from the recycling bins. I was once a student here myself, and I understand that between school, work, a web of rapidly growing financial entanglements, attempting to decode the subtle social cues of potential romantic interests and the knowledge that every day I will be a less attractive human with less time on a planet with fewer chances of being habitable for my hypothetical offspring, it can be difficult to pay attention to precisely where my refuse ends. That being said, the next wealthy oligarch that posts their ironic pronouns on social media is going to get a close-up photo of my whole anus in response. (laughs) You know, you don't have to say whole before <laughs> anus. You just have to say the picture of my anus, not my whole anus. It's I, just going to be a it's picture assumed, of half of my anus. Right, exactly. It's pretty much assumed <laughs> it's going to be your entire anus if you're sending that picture. Wow. So we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, hopefully on tomorrow's show. Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever piece of This Is Hell swag that they choose. And you can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Thanks to Richard K. of East Olympia, Washington, and Rob M. of Aurora, Illinois, both of whom picked up black This Is Hell t-shirts when they visited thisishell.com and clicked on support. Thanks, Richard and Rob. You can uh, leave your answer to this week's question from hell, as always, at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, or you can email it to Radio. At gmail.com, as always, we will be revealing this week's winner at the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth, which is coming up tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor as we are... Where is that piece of paper I just printed out? Did I not bring it in here? No, here it is right here. Uh, So... uh, and so as let me start this all over now a word from our sponsor as we are completely listener supported our sponsor is you Matthew A messaged us via Facebook writing in the 1995 best of this is hell that was put up in 2019 I believe Chuck interviews Gary Webb about the crack epidemic in Los Angeles with the CIA and the Contras. At the end of the interview, after the question from hell, Chuck asks, so when's the movie coming out? So he writes that Rick Ross, you got to check this out, Rick Ross is interviewed by the 85 South show, and I'm only 20 minutes in, but I have to send this along to you all. Apparently, he's been trying to shop his story around to Hollywood, and they all want to stiff him on pay. $2 million for the screenwriter, but 600000 for him. Same uh, deal from multiple production teams. While I understand Rick Ross may not be interested in being a guest on This Is Hell... 
Uh, screw you, Matthew. I definitely have to pass this on to you guys because this is a fascinating perspective from the source. Many years later, perhaps on some subjects confined by a non-disclosure agreement. Who knows? You should check it out, dudes. So thanks, Matthew, a few things. So Gary Webb is the late great journalist and author of the book Dark Alliance, the Contras and the Crack Cocaine Explosion. That interview was conducted in 1998 here on This Is Hell, and Gary's story has been turned into a movie called Kill the Messenger, which came out in 2014 and stars Jeremy Renner. And I cannot watch it because I know what ends up happening with Gary, and it's an incredibly sad story, and I just don't want to have to go through that, to be honest with you. I get a little bit triggered, if you will, when I start watching that movie. So there was a movie based on Gary Webb's perspective of it, but not Rick Ross. As for Rick Ross, uh, Freeway Rick Ross was sentenced to life imprisonment under the Three Strokes Law in 1996, two years before Dark Alliance was published. Rick Ross was one of the main sources for uh, Gary Webb's book. Freeway Rick was convicted for purchasing more than 100 kilograms of cocaine from a federal agent in a sting operation. Later that year, a series of articles by Gary in the San Jose Mercury News revealed a connection between one of Ross's cocaine sources, Danilo Blandon, and the CIA as part of the Iran-Contra affair. Ross eventually discovered a legal loophole that would lead to his release. Ross's case has was brought to a federal court of appeals, which found that the three-strikes law had been erroneously applied to his case and reduced his sentence to only 20 years. He was released from prison in 2009. And yes, Matthew, I will check out uh, Rick's interview over the holidays, and maybe we can get Freeway Rick on the show. Earlier this week, we mentioned how we will be playing the best of 2022 starting Monday, December 19th, and going through the first week of 2023. We asked you all to send us your favorite episodes, what you what you believe are the best episodes of This Is Hell, or your favorite guests. Like everything here on This Is Hell, this is about you. When we do the listener appreciation party, it's to show our appreciation for you. And we want you to program the next three weeks of shows because we want to make certain that these are your favorite interviews of 2022. Braden S. contacted us with my picks are Sanctions Are a Weapon with Nicholas Mulder, Not a Riot, Race Massacres and Capitalism with Dre Cummings and Calvin Graham, When Pregnancy Becomes a Crime with Kate Mann, Disability is Everyone's Problem Someday with Laura Malden. I loved all of these. So thanks, Braden. And uh, 2022 has been so weird for, for me that all of those seem like they were from years and years and years ago. But I concur, Braden. Those were some of our best interviews of the year. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, there was the time before pan- the pandemic. Since the pandemic, I can't really remember anything before the pandemic. It seems like there's a pre-pandemic years and then the post-pandemic years. For me, that's how 2022 is. It's all kind of a blur and anything before my surgery in February is like this weird time of the pandemic, which is completely different from anything that's happened that happened in 2019 or any other year in my life. So I'm going through this weird time issue and all of those interviews, I can't believe that they actually happened in the last year. Mark A. also shared his favorites, writing that he would, uh, or his uh, best of 22 include our interviews on Iran just recently. 
uh, East Kentucky, which was a fantastic interview. Um, now I'm forgetting his name, but a fantastic interview about the flooding that happened there. Disability is everyone's problem. That's the Laura Malden interview. Uh, pregnancy, that's the Cape Man interview. Child welfare, and I got to go back and find out who that guest was. Sturgis, yeah, everybody loved that interview when we did it, and I thought for sure that was like in 2020. Flint Taylor, who was just recently on, and uh, joined us during office hours last week, which was a blast. And conversations with writers from Black Agenda Report are always super, so it's hard to pick. SLS gives us their two cents, writing, This doesn't answer your question, but my favorite of your monologues was probably the Patreon episode about the now-shuttered Bangkok Inn and your relationship reflection. What we're going to do over the holidays, we didn't really think about this until SLS sent this in to us, uh, is we are going to take a couple of things from behind the paywall. At the Patreon paywall and play them during the holidays. So maybe that will entice you into being a subscriber to our Patreon uh, page or whatever uh, shows at patreon.com slash this is hell. And uh, we just got this in from, uh, oh, geez, I didn't even write down their name. I feel so embarrassed now. Anyway, they send that their favorite uh, interviews for the 2022 were Prophet Uber Alice with Dean Starkman. Disability is everyone's problem with Laura Malden. Boy, that is definitely going to be played because that's the third person who's told us they want to hear that. Lessons from the Cold War with Penny Von Eschen, which I really enjoyed. And Guilty Until Further Notice with Daniel Medved. So we're going to play some of those as well. Keep sending in your favorite interview guests and who knows, maybe we'll be playing your favorite interview during our upcoming Best of 22 shows, which will be airing throughout the holidays. Uh, Let's see. What else did I want to mention here before we find out from Lindsay what else is going to be happening on today's show? I think there was something over here. Let me check real quick. Probably not. Oh! Let's do Rotten History, and then we'll get to what uh, Lindsay is going to play. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On December 12th, 1948, 74 years ago this week, in what was then the British colony of Malaya, now the independent nation of Malaysia, because the British Empire could not, not, well, they not only butchered the people they colonized, they butchered their language too. A 16-man patrol unit of the British Scots Guard showed up at a rubber plantation near the town of Batang Kali, looking for communist insurgents. With the end of World War II, British forces had arrived in Malaya to take back control of the colony from the former Japanese imperial occupiers, because the last thing the British wanted was some other imperial force occupying land that they had formerly occupied. But the British were finding that the locally-based guerrillas who had helped push the Japanese out now wanted the British out as well. Go figure. Many of the Malayan insurgents had aligned themselves with the Chinese communists and were targeting British-owned farms, plantations, and other businesses, sometimes even assassinating British landowners. Meanwhile, the Scots guards who arrived at Batang Kali and who had originally been trained to fight in Europe were not well prepared for a colonial war in the jungle and knew little about how to behave in accordance with international law, which are perfect conditions for British war crimes and British military defeats. The guards arrived at the rubber plantation in trucks and accused the Malay workers of helping the Chinese communists, not recognizing how the British Empire was aligning itself with the imperial desires of places like, I don't know, 
They just defeated Imperial Japan. After separating the men from the women and children, the British soldiers took 24 of them out in groups of four and five at a time and shot them in the back. That's how evil the British Empire was and remains to this day. Then the Scots Guards set the village on fire because one war crime wasn't enough for them. Years later, the local women who witnessed the massacre would recall finding their men's corpses horribly mutilated with heads cut off and genitals crushed. Yep, that's the British Empire, all right. A British government investigation in 1949, the year after the event, claimed that the murdered men had resisted arrest and found no wrongdoing on the part of the Scots Guards. Because for the British Empire, there is no wrongdoing in shooting people in the back or mutilating, decapitating, and castrating them posthumously. 21 years later, in 1970, a new inquiry, I hated that band, a new inquiry concluded that too much time had passed and too little evidence remained to support any claim of a massacre. Apparently, the new inquiry did not have access to the history Rinaldo Magaldi does when researching and writing rotten history. In 1993, a petition by three survivors of the massacre calling for a new investigation, but that was also turned down. Other calls for justice in the matter have likewise been dismissed, most recently by the European Court of Human Rights in 2018, again citing lack of evidence. Now that's rotten history, because it's the rotten history of the British Empire, which is always rotten history. And this is hell. So, uh, Lindsay, tell people what you are going to be playing, and uh, I'll be heading out to try to figure out what we're going to be doing on tomorrow's show. It is with journalists Maya Shenoir and Victoria Law on the ways prison reforms expand state surveillance and punishment in their new book, Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. So that's the interview that Lindsay is going to be playing. I am off to try to figure out exactly how um, or what is going to be happening on tomorrow's show. Uh, like I said, with Stefania Marizzi, who is supposed to be our guest on tomorrow's show, uh, was unable to do the show at the time that we need her to do the show and was not able to do the length of the interview that we want to do. So we are going to see if we can reschedule her to be our first guest of 2023. And we really appreciate everybody's patience with today's show and our inability to get today's guest on the air and our problems with tomorrow's guest. But this is... I don't know, like the perfect way to wrap up a very imperfect 2022. So we really appreciate all of your support. Please show your support by either doing some holiday gift shopping at thisishell.com when you click on support or by becoming a subscriber to Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishellradio. I want to thank Lindsay Gorey for sitting in and producing today's show and for chaperoning, if you will, today's interview. And uh, yeah, just thanks to everybody. Everybody, thanks for listening, and don't forget, this is not the media. This is hell. This is not the media. This is hell. Today on This is Hell, mid-1990s mass incarceration has revealed itself to be a brutal state of oppression that has no interest in rehabilitation and a laser-like focus on punishment and vengeance. Liberals and conservatives alike at times even working together, in an attempt to make justice less brutal, have developed reforms like fewer prisons and more cops and fewer inmates through electronic monitoring and always depending on expanding use of technologies. 
of surveillance. But each and every reform seems to contribute to a reinforcing of the prison system and the continued criminalization of and control over people of color. It's as if the problem of prisons is believed to be the buildings themselves and not the imprisonment. We'll talk prison, the reforms that end up hurting prisoners, and prison abolition in a few when we have. Returning to the show, Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law are co-authors of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, which features a foreword by Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow. Maya is the editor-in-chief of Truth Out. Maya was on This Is Hell back in 2014 to discuss her then-just-published book, Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. Follow Maya on Twitter, at Maya Shenwar. Victoria is a freelance journalist and as well as the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, and co-editor of Don't Leave Your Friends Behind, Concrete Ways to Support Families in Social Justice Movements and Communities. Victoria is a co-founder of NYC Books Through Bars, which you can find about out about at booksthroughbarsnyc.org. This is Victoria's third appearance on This Is Hell. She was on the show most recently back in June of 2017 when we spoke with her about her writing that had just been posted. Investigation, corporations are profiting from immigrant detainees' labor. Some say it's slavery, which she had written for in these times. You can follow Victoria on Twitter at LVickyML. That's L-V-I-K-K-I-M-L. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio, so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Prison reformers, even those who are well-intentioned, can sometimes come up with reforms that do nothing to help prisoners or the oppression of imprisonment. And always they seem to fall for some entrenched belief that prison and incarceration are inevitably necessary. Here to help us understand prison and prison form reform in a new way. Returning to This Is Hell, Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law are co-authors of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, which features a foreword by Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Maya. Thank you so much, Chuck. Good to be here. Maya is the editor-in-chief of Truth Out. Maya was last on back in 2014 to discuss her then-just-published book, Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. Maya is the co-editor of the anthology, Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? And welcome back to This Is Hell, Victoria. Thanks for having us, Chuck. Victoria is a freelance journalist as well as the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, and co-editor of Don't Leave Your Friends Behind, Concrete Ways to Support Families in Social Justice Movements. You can find out about more about Maya by going to truthout.com. And Victoria is a co-founder of NYC Books Through Bars, which you can find out more about at Books Through Bars nyc.org. Let's start with you, Maya. Michelle Alexander writes in the foreword, Prison by Any Other Names investigates the kinds of reforms that initially appear to be a step in the right direction, but are in reality leading us somewhere we don't ever want to go. Unfortunately, many of the alternatives to incarceration being embraced today will likely worsen the lives of the very people and communities that many reformers aim to help. In my view, Michelle writes, most concerning is the rapid spread of technological fixes to our supposedly broken system. In our zeal to make some progress in the fight against mass incarceration, many well-intentioned reformers are witting 
wittingly or unwittingly converting homes, neighborhoods, and entire communities into high-tech digital prisons. Maya, where do you see fault in the reasoning that leads one to want to reform policing, reform justice by creating a surveillance state? What explains supposedly a very well-intentioned reformer's belief that mass surveillance is somehow a solution to the problems of mass incarceration? So I think that we have to look at the logic beneath some of these reforms and think about how that's translating into what they look like in practice. So instead of shrinking the system, a lot of these reforms are operating in terms of replacement. So they're saying, if we can't put so many people in a cage called prison, we have to find a different kind of cage to put them in. So what Michelle Alexander is referring to, for the most part, is that there's been a real expansion of electronic monitoring over the past decade and a half. And basically, electronic monitoring means house arrest, putting an electronic shackle around someone's ankle and forcing them to stay inside, aside from pre-approved departures. In 2005, we had 53,000 people on electronic monitoring around the country. And then recent estimates have actually put it around 200,000 people. So this is rapidly expanding. And I think that what people sometimes don't understand about this type of surveillance is that it's actually a type of confinement. People on monitors need to get pre-approved permission just to leave the house. And it often isn't granted. So people are sometimes faced with an inability to get emergency medical care, to visit friends and family, to go grocery shopping, just the most basic things. One person we interviewed said she couldn't even take the garbage out, which was at the end of her housing complex. And of course, many people prefer electronic monitoring to prison because you're at home. But that doesn't mean that it's good. And I think that this is one of the things that we have to get our head around, that just because something might be slightly better than the institution called prison doesn't mean it's good. It's still oppressive. It's still a form of a cage. The penalty for violating electronic monitoring is often reincarceration, jail or prison. And so it actually becomes a driver of incarceration in many cases because it's so easy to violate the terms of electronic monitoring. And so very often people are sent right back to incarceration. And plus, this is still a, a form of confinement that's built on a foundation of white supremacy. So it hasn't challenged any of the roots of the system of incarceration which Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow, it hasn't challenged those roots. So we still see these things playing out, like in Cook County, where I live, where Chicago is, 70% of people on electronic monitors are Black, although Black people are 24% of the population. So the roots haven't changed. The system hasn't changed. We're replacing one cage with another. So, Victoria, um, the other thing about uh, home, mon- home arrest and monitoring is 
It's cheaper than running an entire prison, more cost-effective, too. How much, if any, impact does the fact that making our homes into the prison, that it's cheaper and running prisons leads to reformers embracing this kind of surveillance state? Are reformers either seduced by or revealing a prioritization of cost in their reforms? In some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. So we do have to remember that as especially now during the coronavirus pandemic, but even before that, uh, state budgets and local budgets were ballooning under the staggering costs of keeping people in physical jails and prisons because you not only are paying for food, utilities, uh, the the salaries of the people who guard them, the benefits uh, that come with employing people to guard them and run the prison and all of the expensive overhead. And you can whittle all of those away if you can place them on an electronic monitor and have them be at home. So you're suddenly not paying for dozens of prison staff or jail staff to guard them. You're not paying for the overhead and everything else. And so we were seeing jurisdictions turning to electronic monitoring, not necessarily to decrease jail populations of people who are deemed scary or threatening, but people who might otherwise have been told that they could go home otherwise and await their day in court at home. But now instead of awaiting their day in court at home and told to just return in three weeks, people were told to uh, go home with an electronic monitor on them and in some cases, they would have to pay the county or the electronic monitoring company a daily or weekly fee for this supposed privilege of being able to await their day in court at home. So part of it is cost savings, but part of it, too, is just this idea that you could put people under some sort of coercive control, whereas in the past you might not have put them under any sort of supervision or surveillance at all. We've seen this Uh, with the coronavirus pandemic in jails and prisons, where in Cook County, Chicago, where Maya is, and also in Wisconsin and other jurisdictions, judges were ordering people to be released from jails, which were coronavirus hotspots, not on their own recognizance or with a set of conditions that would just say, uh, you're not allowed to have contact with your alleged victim or you must be home by this time, but ordering them to be released on electronic monitoring. And that meant that when Cook County ran out of devices, people just stayed in coronavirus-filled jails until a device became available, even though a judge had said that they should be released. So what we're seeing is an expansion of the ways in which the state can put more people under control and a widening of the carceral net, in addition to the local jurisdiction or the state being able to save a few pennies here and a few pennies there. Sure, that's about cost saving. Let me just follow up on that with you, Victoria. Is this also also about about, uh, profiteering? Are monitors an outcome of market solution and privatization of prisons? If we look at the costs of monitoring and the privatization. Uh, BI, for example, which is one of the largest electronic monitoring companies, was bought by GeoGroup, one of the largest private prison companies in the world, and uh, actually has the contract to uh, put electronic monitors on people who would otherwise, 
who might otherwise be in ICE detention. But what we're seeing, we should look at it as not these companies are driving mass incarceration, but these companies are finding ways to profit off of mass incarceration. There is a giant ballooning system of carceral control, whether it be physical prisons that a private company like Geo Group runs, or electronic monitoring, which is something that BI has a large market share of. And then these are companies that say, how can we feast at this trough? And how can we continue to make sure that people get funneled through? So you see them uh, lobby for more punitive restrictions and more punitive laws and uh, uh, ordinances that criminalize more and more people. And you're seeing jurisdictions and politicians who don't want to be seen as soft on crime buying into this logic of, yes, people need to be under some sort of coercive control instead of what are the underlying needs that people need in order to not be caught in a criminalized web. So it is much easier, uh, it is a much easier solution from a political standpoint and a market standpoint to slap an electronic monitor on somebody or to place them in a jail and perhaps sentence them to prison than to look at the underlying causes of why somebody might have done something that was illegal in the first place. Maya, you were touching on how free you really are when you are under house arrest, when you are on a monitor. What happens to the concept of home once one is on a monitor and under house arrest? For instance, have you ever found those who have been under house arrest to have a desire to, you know, like once off their monitor to move because they now think of that house, that structure as a prison? So what happens to your concept of home when it does become a prison? Well, I think that one of the things that we have to keep in mind around these questions is that very often the person on monitoring is not the only one in that home. Very often people have children, have partners, and those people are often affected. And so the whole concept of home is shifted for many different people. And particularly one of the things that we heard and one of the things that we continually see in the research is the way that children are impacted by monitoring. So, for example, people with young children, of course, those children will start questioning, will start asking, like, what what is happening? Why can't my mother take me to the park? We several of the people we interviewed actually spoke about not being able to take their children to school, to the park, just the most basic things that you think about doing with your child. And beyond that, it really bred a sense of fear in children. So a number of studies will talk about how children would get scared and start crying every time the monitor made a beeping sound, which is, which is very common and say, wait, is daddy going to be taken back to jail? Or is mommy going to be separated from me? Like, this is the type of thing that children become alert for. Many times children start acting out in school, doing the kinds of things that you do when you're constantly in fear. So not only does it turn home into a place where the person being monitored is constantly in fear, it turns it into a place where 
those those around them are very aware that this is not just home anymore. We're not the only people here. There's also this constant eye of the state basically infiltrating this space that ordinarily would be, you know, kind of sacred and private and and at least your own. And I think another thing that that we talk about in our book is just the psychological shift that happens when you know that every move you make could violate you basically, you know, and put you, put you in a position where some of the most worst, some of the worst punishments imaginable can be inflicted on you. And, and I'm talking about jail and prison, of course. And so I think, I think sometimes the system is perceived as a blessing or a gift. Hey, look, all you have to do is sit around at home instead of being thrust into a cage and a dungeon. But really, it's it's just reshaping what the home is and what your mindset is on a day-to-day basis. And I think that we can see this in the number of people who are actually sent back to prison from monitoring. So the the story that opens our book in the first chapter is that of Colette Payne, who's from Chicago. She was a mother of two when she was put on her monitor. And she ended up going back to jail. And it was partially a sense of, you know, just desperation and confinement and isolation that drove her back to the addiction that initially got her arrested in the first place. And we see this playing out again and again, that it's not just that the terms of confinement are very restricting and it's so easy to violate them. It's also the psychological impact of the monitor. And you can also extend this to probation, I think, which is the most common alternative to incarceration the psychological impact of all those restrictions and the way in which you're just not able to live the life that you want to live. So it's much, much more difficult to get a job, which is something that you might be able to get pre-approved permission to, to go to. It's, it's very hard to get a job in the first place if you're on a monitor or on probation it's, it's hard to do these basic things that we try to do to build a meaningful life, which is ultimately one of the most important things you need to prevent you from going back into jail or prison. So I think these are some of the things that we need to look at in terms of just concrete impact on people before we jump to the conclusion that the alternative to incarceration must be a type of surveillance. Maya, let me follow up on that, because in your book, you write how in 2005, your sister was arrested and sent to juvenile detention for a drug offense. Over the next 14 years, she served seven more sentences in jails and prisons, all for offenses related to her heroin addiction. Uh, Is monitoring and house arrest, is that the state abandoning the entire concept, the entire idea of rehabilitation altogether and leaving justice as nothing but a system of punitive vengeance? Or is this more so the state actually working in 
opposition to rehabilitation, not even allowing the prisoner to have access to drug treatment, which is a key part of rehabilitation as drug addiction is a main driver of recidivism. So is monitoring the state just essentially admitting to abandoning any concept of rehabilitation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really a neoliberal measure. Like, it's it's casting aside the idea that the responsibility of the state should in any way relate to support or resources. So obviously, we're not advocating for people to be incarcerated so that they can have shelter and food and health care and all those things. But at least on paper, those things are responsibilities that, that prison is supposed to provide for people when, when they're incarcerated. And of course, on monitoring, none of those things are provided. In fact, you're paying the state for your own confinement. And I think that one of the things that I noticed when my sister was on monitoring and also earlier when she was on house arrest without monitoring is that the opportunities for rehabilitation for her actually shrunk. So she could not just go out to go to an AA meeting or an NA meeting if she was feeling the urge to use drugs or alcohol, which is one of, for many people, the basic techniques that's offered by our society is like, oh, there are these free meetings everywhere that you can go if you're feeling an impulse to use. So she couldn't just go do that. And also she was sitting around at home all the time without any of these resources or opportunities for support and feeling bored and desolate. And of course, those are some of the things that that fuel addiction. And meanwhile, I think sometimes the state will prescribe what it thinks you need to do to recover from an addiction. And this is another thing that we talk about in our book in terms of court-mandated treatment. And I believe that at least the second time she was on monitoring, one of the only things that she could leave the house for was this court-mandated drug treatment program, which not only was ineffective, but the the main goal of it was to kind of test you for drugs and open up the possibility of you going back to prison every time you were tested. So she was tested very regularly, even though she could rarely leave the house for anything else. And the idea was that this this testing was a test to see if she would be going back to jail. And so it's. I think it does kind of really feed into this idea that as Ruth Wilson Gilmore told us during an interview for our book, the only legitimate purpose of the state is defense. So it's defense against people who might be breaking its laws. So basically what she was being monitored for and quote unquote supported in was not breaking laws. And and it had nothing to do with the actual treatment or provision of resources that would lead toward a sustained recovery. 
We are speaking with Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law, co-authors of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. You can find out more about Maya by going to her website, mayashenwar.com, and you can find out more about Victoria at her website, victorialaw.net. Victoria, following up on what Maya was saying and what you write about uh, as well in your book, it's not just that uh, addiction, drug addiction rehabilitation is almost, you know, it's it's almost off limits to people who are in monitoring, even though they can have it. It's not just if you have mental health issues that you might not be able to have access to the assistance that you need uh, when you're on monitoring. However, when you are in prison, there are rehabilitation sites within prisons. There are now mental health prisons. And all I can think of when I was reading that in your book, uh, Victoria and Maya, but uh, this question is going to Victoria, is how good of a job can you do in rehabilitating somebody with a drug addiction or somebody who has mental health issues when they're still in a site of punishment? It's not like the punishment goes away. It's just a drug rehabilitation center that's in a prison. It's just a mental health prison. So, Victoria, how effective can the rehabilitation that's necessary to and the recidivism of drug addiction that when it comes to prison, uh, the necessary help that people might need when it comes to mental health issues. How successful can you be at that kind of rehabilitation within a prison? Not very successful at all, actually. I mean, what we're seeing is drug, re- uh, drug programs and supposed mental health programs in prisons, and then we're seeing a star- uh, an alarming shift in also lockdown drug treatment centers and lockdown mental health treatment centers on the outside as well. But in either case, you're forcibly confining somebody. You're ripping them away from their family and their community. You are putting them in a locked-in place where they are not allowed to leave. The doors only open one way. So the guard or the nurse or the security staff can let you in or out, but you cannot open the door yourself to go in or out. Uh, You have limited, if any, contact with your support network, so family, friends, community. And we see that at least for drug treatment and drug misuse, strong relationships are among one of the most significant motivating factors to curb drug misuse. And tearing people away from family members, friends, loved ones, their roles in the community actually decrease people's uh, ability to maintain strong relationships and have that motivation to say, you know what, my my drug use is impacting my ability to be there for my children, for my significant other, for my parents who may need help, or for my my siblings who may be struggling, or it's impacting my ability to, say, be the little league coach or to be the literacy tutor at the local library. And these are things that are important to me. And I want to continue being there for my loved ones in my community. But when you pull somebody away from that support system, there is less motivation. And instead, all you're doing is punishing them. And oftentimes, these programs don't address root causes of why people are uh, using illicit substances or root causes of what is happening that is causing mental health crises and issues in their lives. So it doesn't necessarily address root causes such as trauma and violence that have happened in their lives that has never been addressed. And instead just basically says, don't do this, 
don't do drugs or take this pill or go to this therapy session that will teach you that when you are angry, you should rip some pages out of a coloring book, but will never actually address why are you so angry? What are the reasons that suddenly you are filled with rage or filled with sadness or can't get out of bed some mornings? What happened to you that is having you do this? And what can what can be done to support you in moving through and past that trauma? So these programs don't actually do this. And then inside prisons, we also have to remember that these programs are very scarce and they are subject to all of the prison rules and restrictions. So during the coronavirus pandemic in jails and prisons across the country, programs stopped. People were either locked in their cells or locked in their housing units 23 to 24 hours a day, supposedly to stem the spread of coronavirus. And that meant that people, the handfuls of people who were able to access drug treatment programs or some sort of mental health counseling or group therapy suddenly were unable to do so for a period of time that is indefinite because there is no, the programs will start after three weeks of lockdown or after three months of lockdown. It's your program has stopped. No outside staff or volunteers are allowed in except for those who are correctional officers and people needed to maintain the uh, the running of the prison. But all program volunteers have stopped. All teachers have stopped coming in. And you are left with nothing but your thoughts and your worries about contracting coronavirus, your worries that your loved ones or your family members outside might contract coronavirus, and nothing to help you get through this. In the meanwhile, drugs are very rampant in many jails and prisons. So it's not that you're sitting there and there is not uh, the ability to access drugs while you are in jail or prison to help alleviate these fears. So what little supports people are given or what little opportunities to participate in drug treatment or drug programs, however not helpful they might be, are torn away. And at the same time, there is still the pervasive presence of drugs in all of these places. Maya is, you know, because throughout your book, when I was reading it, your and Victoria's book, when I was reading it, I kept thinking about how it seemed like the type of people, liberal reformers who wanted to, and conservatives as well, who wanted to replace prisons with house arrest and monitoring. It seemed like they understood the problem of prisons as a structure, but they didn't understand the problem of imprisonment as a structure, if you will. Is the goal by such reformers, and is this a distraction by anybody who's seeking prison reform, is the goal to alleviate any complicity we may feel in allowing for harsh prison incarceration to exist? Is that why we're just trying to, is this an attempt to erase prisons but allow imprisonment to stay intact? Yeah, I think that that's a good description of reform in general. Like the idea that, okay, there's a problem. So how can we address this problem in the most surface way while leaving the underlying structures intact, the underlying oppressions intact, and in many cases, expanding the number of people 
who are caught in the net of this problem. So I'm not saying that everyone who advocates these types of prison reforms has this evil agenda, but that this has been the effect of reform throughout history. And part of it is a kind of hesitation at the idea of massive structural change and a lack of imagination. One of the people we interviewed, Rachel Herzing, who was a co-founder of the prison abolitionist organization, Critical Resistance, said one of the major stumbling blocks in making these kinds of necessary transformations is a lack of imagination. <laughs> and I think that that's so true when we talk about, okay, how can we think beyond reform? It's, it's something that takes a real stretch of the imagination. Because these systems have been in place for so many years, we have to think about how prison is not just about prison. It was founded on colonialism. It was founded on slavery. It was founded on capitalism. So all of these are the structures that drove prison. And in order to really uproot it, we have to talk, talk about uprooting the structures. And I think one of the things that Vicky and I draw upon in the book is the fact that prison itself began as a reform. So it evolved in the 18th century as an alternative to physical punishment and capital punishment. And it was the kinder and gentler way of punishing people instead of killing them or chopping off their arms. We were saying, okay, what you do is you put people in this institution of confinement where they are forced to reflect and in terms of religious reformers forced to, you know, find God and make some sort of penitence. The origin of the word penitentiary is penitence. So, so that, that was a reform. It didn't challenge the underlying structures that were leading people into being punished in the first place, it was reforming punishment. And I think that's what we're seeing right now, too, with many of these proposals is a reforming of the system in its own image. Well, so, Victoria, let's just follow up on that. So mm -hmm. we keep uh, pursuing methods of punishment. In our history of prisons, does punishment work when it comes to making people not continue to be criminals, not be rearrested, not have recidivism? Does punishment work? And if it doesn't work, then why haven't we questioned the system of punishment? It doesn't work. I mean, if punished, if, pun if the system of punishment worked, we would have in the United States, which has 2.3 million people behind bars, uh, mass uh, probation numbers of 3.6 million people. We have the highest probation rate in the world. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world. That should mean the United States would be the safest country in the world. And as we see, it is not. Um, and that is because we are not addressing underlying issues. We have not built support systems in which people can survive and thrive in society. And instead, what we're doing is we are continually cutting away at what little social safety net the United States had provided to people who were most under-resourced under and most marginalized, and instead are replacing that with punishment. So if you are poor 
and you are, say, unable to afford daycare and your children and you leave your children alone in a park or a McDonald's that you work at or someplace else, you can be arrested and charged with child abandonment or child neglect. If you are poor and you cannot afford drug treatment and you continue to use substances, you are arrested and confined and perhaps you are sentenced to prison because the judge thinks that you will not use drugs in prison or be able to access drug treatment, or you are sentenced to a uh, locked down drug treatment center. However, if you are richer, you can afford to check yourself in to the Betty Ford Clinic, where you are not locked in. You are not treated as if you are a prisoner. You are, you know, they actually try to address the root causes of your incarceration and they treat you like a human being. So what we're seeing is uh, all of our solutions look like punishment, they look like retribution, they look like uh, ways in which to further penalize people for not being, a, for society's inability to meet their needs, not only the, that person's individual needs, but the community's needs. What happens, why do we have areas that are low-income communities that have higher rates of arrests? Why do we have uh, areas that are mostly low-income black and brown neighborhoods in cities where there are higher rates of arrest, higher rates of crime, and people don't have opportunities to do anything else. So what is happening in those neighborhoods? Do those neighborhoods have other opportunities for people to be able to survive and thrive? Or are the only opportunities for people to do anything, either dead-end jobs or activities that have been criminalized and that lead to arrest and imprisonment. Maya, you write that in 2009, as part of its Department of Homeland Security Appropriations Bill, Congress passed a mandate requiring U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement ICE to maintain at least 34,000 beds in immigration jails each night, ensuring steadily high numbers of immigrants behind bars. You write about racial control through imprisonment. Prisons as site of control of immigrants that are now somehow swept up in the war on terrorism is is Homeland and ICE then part of yet another new layer, a new system of racialized control? Are the protests right now against the actions of Homeland Security, whether those are in Minneapolis or wherever, and those of uh, ICE, are these protests against a new level of racialized control? Absolutely. I mean, I think that we need to look at these systems not as separate, and not as isolated in terms of how they interact with racial control, but as like all a, a part of a larger system built on white supremacy. And we know, of course, that prisons evolved out of slavery. Many people have seen the documentary, the 13th, about the 13th Amendment and all of the ways in which the prison that we know today is actually in part traceable back to the institution of slavery. But also prisons and policing emerged out of other institutions of white supremacy. So one of the things that we talk about in our book as we connect policing and prisons and, and their evolution and how many of these alternatives actually fall under this rubric as well. Policing 
and prisons evolved out of indigenous genocide. So many of the original police were actually vigilantes who were participating actively in indigenous genocide. They evolved out of vigilantes policing the border. So the Texas Rangers participated in both indigenous genocide and kind of an early form of border policing and targeting Mexicans and all of these things. So these institutions are, are tied together. I think that ICE is, is absolutely part of this larger whole. And when we talk about immigration detention, I think we have to look at that also as jail at, at Truth Out, our style guide we we call detention centers the immigration jails, you know, because we want to recognize this as a component of a larger system of white supremacy and racial control. And in our book, we draw this back to the alternatives that, that we discuss. So, for example, with electronic monitoring, one of the most blatant examples of its expansion relates to immigration. And we see that 38,000 immigrants approximately are shackled by electronic monitors on any given day. And that number is growing and growing. And meanwhile, the increase in immigrants who are placed on monitors has not substantially decreased the number of people who are locked in detention centers or immigration jails. And so it's really an Expansion. It's an expansion of the control of immigrants. It's a an expansion of the control of marginalized people in general. And the system is just reaching its tentacles further and further out. And I think one of the things that we're hoping to do in our book is look at the very, very wide range of systems that are all interlocked and all built on these racist and capitalist foundations so that it's not just about eliminating prisons. It's not even just about eliminating policing. It's about looking at those undergirdings. And this is why we covered such a wide range of different systems in our book. We look at how some of the systems of social work and some of the systems involved in our medical industrial complex are tied up with the same racist foundations that, that prisons are built on. We look at how mental health treatment institutions, as you mentioned earlier, grew out of some of, some of those same roots and continue to kind of reproduce systems of white supremacy. So I think that this is kind of, it's kind of a challenge to, to think about how all of these interlaced institutions need to be need to be questioned. But it's also essential because one of the things that young black abolitionist organizers are are calling us to do right now is to challenge the way in which all major US institutions are built on structures of racism. That this country was founded upon slavery and indigenous genocide. And so 
really in all of our institutions and in our book, we talk about schools quite a bit as well. We need to be looking, looking at those underlying causes and also looking at how they manifest just on a day-to-day basis. And so right now, when organizers are challenging school policing, they're not just challenging the presence of uniformed officers in schools, but they're also challenging the way that racism is, is baked into the operation of our school system. One last question for each of you. We have been speaking with Maya Shenwar in Victoria Law, co-authors of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, which features a foreword by Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow. You can follow Maya on Twitter at Maya Shenwar, and you can find out more about Maya at her website, Maya Shenwar. Victoria is a co-founder of NYC Books Through Bars, which you can find out more about at booksthroughbarsnyc.org. And you can follow Victoria on Twitter at L-V-I-K-K-I-M-L, L-V-I-K-K-I-M-L. Find out more about Victoria at her website, victorialaw.net. One last question for each of you, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. Let's start with you, Victoria. You write, the image of the prison industrial complex brings to light the web of punitive systems targeting people who are marginalized by race, class, gender identity, disability, or immigration status, and who are considered to be simply a surplus to society. It's what Henry Giraud has called on our show many times, the disposable part of our society. Mm -hmm. What is the impact on our humanity when we have this sense of humans who are a surplus, who are disposable. For those who, like yourself or me, who are absolutely opposed to this kind of system, sickened by it, and for you, a person who works hard to abolish it, how does unavoidable public complicity within a system that is out of our control affect the way that we view humanity? Does our prison system make us all, to some degree, a little bit more inhumane? Yes, it does. It tells people that we can dispose of problems by locking them into a somewhere else, whether it be a jail, a prison, an immigration center, a lockdown treatment center, uh, someplace away from us rather than addressing uh, community safety and community needs. And what it does is it says some people, particularly people who are black, brown, low income, Uh, otherwise marginalized by their gender identity or their sexual orientation or anything else are just problems that should just go somewhere else. And we are, uh, we as an American society are very good at allowing solutions to be posited as let's just put people elsewhere. Let's get them out of the streets, out of the communities and away from us rather than saying what happened here and what harms have happened, and what are the needs of everybody who are involved. So yes, I think it does chip away at our humanity and makes us less accountable to each other. Maya, how much do you fear that the outcome of the uprising against racialized police violence will be the kinds of reforms that take justice in the wrong direction, despite any good intentions of the reformers? To to what degree do you fear that it's just going to be more of the liberal kind of reforms of continued punishment, continued surveillance, and things like house arrest and monitoring? How How much fear do you have that that's going to be the outcome of the protests against the murder? 
of George Floyd? I'm actually really hopeful in this moment, which I hardly ever say. But thank God, the by the way, just thank of... you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> but really, you know, the demand that organizers are currently issuing to defund the police, I think, is a fundamentally non-reformist demand. It's, it's a demand that calls us not only to reduce the size and reduce the scope of the prison and policing system, which of course extends to all these other reforms that we've discussed, but it's also calling for a massive reprioritization of society. It's calling for us to invest both with money and with kind of our, our humanity and our approach to society in life-affirming priorities like housing, like education, like healthcare and mental health care, like the arts and recreation and programs for youth, particularly in black communities and other marginalized communities. And so to me, these calls are actually revolutionary. They're not saying, okay, we should replace police with so-called community policing, or we should replace police with private police. Now, those calls are coming from politicians in response to these uprisings. Certainly, we see mainstream politicians calling for many of the reforms that Vicki and I describe in our book. But we also see a vast number of organizers immediately pushing back on those reform demands, saying, no, we're not looking for community policing, which is a system that has been shown to actually grow the size of police departments and increase violence toward marginalized communities. We're, we're seeing organizers call that out very publicly. And we're actually seeing some cities, at least in part, capitulate to the demand, at least reducing the amount of funding for police departments, if not actually making moves toward dismantling them. So I'm not saying this is a straight path toward complete transformation. And I know that's not true, but I'm really taking heart in the work of organizers in this current moment. And I think it's an opening for us to really, really shift and transform the way that society operates. Well, I truly appreciate all the work that both of you have been doing for many, many years now when it comes to justice reform. We have been speaking with Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law, co-authors of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, which features a foreword by Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow. You can hear our past interviews with Victoria Law at our website, thisishell.com. Unfortunately, Maya was on in 2014, and that was the year of our huge hard drive crash, so we're trying to still oh, put that man. interview back up online. We have it. We have the interview. We just have to get it up online. So thank you both very much for being on the show. This is a great book. And again, listeners, we have only skimmed the very, very surface of this book, Prison by Any Other Name. You've got to go check this book out because they talk about things like prison abolition and how that can kind of work. So thank you very much, both of you, for being back on our show. Thanks so much for having us. All right. Take care, Vicki. Thank you, Chuck. 
Take care, Maya. Take care. Thanks. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. Hello again. This is Lindsay. Chuck uh, went home to prepare for tomorrow's show, which we have confirmed with Michael Hawthorne, our guest we had thought we scheduled today, but perhaps there was typo. He will be here tomorrow. So tune in then. You were just listening to an interview from August 5th, 2020 with Maya Shenoir and Victoria Law. You can find it on our SoundCloud page under the name Prison Reform and Carceral Expansion. So, yes, thank you for listening. We will have more responses to this week's question from Hal tomorrow when we hear from Michael Hawthorne, environmental writer from the Chicago Tribune. All right. Talk to you later. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.